Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. In Mark Ernest Pothier's devastating and life-affirming novel, Outer Sunset, San Francisco in the early 2000s is the backdrop to a family that has been unwinding and fraying for some time. When our narrator, Jim Finley's wife, leaves him after years of a seemingly loving marriage in which the two raised children together, he's stunned and set adrift. What had seemed a constant in his life in San Francisco was now a pressing darkness in his latter years. Jim begins seeing a friend of his daughter Dorothy's, but Jim's life is upended when Dorothy learns that she has an advanced form of pancreatic cancer likely to end her life in months, if not sooner. Thus begins one of the most tender-hearted explorations of family, illness, and home that you will likely read anytime soon. Family, in all of its forms and constructions, its messiness and discomfort is on dis- display in Outer Sunset's lushly imagined world. The layered psychological portrait of a man in his last quarter life asks us to consider the judgments we impose on others, the constraints and limits we apply to our dreams and desires, and the necessity of giving up control to truly live and love fully in the despoiled and radiant now. There are few novels that have walked this far into the mouth of grief while preserving the humanity of their characters, and Outer Sunset was indeed a revelation to me. Mark's work has won a Nelson Algren Short Story Award, has been long-listed for the Pirate Sally Faulkner William Wisdom Prize, and has been published in the Chicago Tribune, Lithub, Santa Clara Review, 
Connotation Press, Kindle Singles, and elsewhere. Mark grew up in western Massachusetts and New York's North Country, earned a BA from St. John's College in Annapolis, and moved to San Francisco in 1987, where he earned an MFA from San Francisco State. He worked nearly 30 years in nonprofit communications, including a wonderful spell with the California Council for the Humanities. He lives with his wife and kids in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you very much, Chris. That's a that's a lovely introduction. I appreciate it. This novel had a had a long and winding road to completion and and publication. Could you outline for us a little bit of its genesis and how it evolved into the book that we have before us now? Absolutely. Um, it began with the uh, the sh- a short story that what did win that Nelson Algren Prize hit. Uh, that I completed in 1994. Um, so that was my first published story, and it was the uh, that's the uh, the first chapter in the book now, and that's it, the it, the entire story grew out of that. Um, the, the the interesting story behind it is that for, was an assignment in one of my MFA workshops to write a um, you know a kind of a knotted moment uh, from two points of view. And in that case, it was the, the hug of the father and the son that you see in the first few pages. Hmm. And I, um, uh, was much more in the, uh, son's head. I wrote this when I was 30 and, um, that voice was not, you know, the story just didn't move. There was no life to it. But when I sat down and started writing father's point of view, it just flowed. And, um, I remember my instructor, uh, Michelle Carter state, said, oh, why aren't you doing this? And I said, well, mm-hmm. because it's the old guy. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> and, uh, but it turned out, you know, uh, 30 years later, I've lived through a lot of uh, what I imagined that man had. And certainly my perspective changed from having had children of my own and raised them and facing off with a lot of uh, older uh, people's stuff, you know. And uh, um, that's why, uh, you know, we're, it's not like I've been writing that novel for 30 years, but I certainly have been evolving into the perspective that I could, you know, what, uh, Flannery O'Connor calls achieve fiction, you know, it had to, to be, um, and it's become art eventually. And so that's, that's, that's kind of how that grew. I, when I started it, uh, I, I would say I wrote the, the rest of the book in about four years mm. and, uh, started that, oh, about six years ago. So did you have to um, go back to any, any moments, um, in Jim's head and say, oh, that's just, this is sort of unrealistic for someone of this age. And that was just my young, my young frame of reference. You know, do you mean in terms of that original story? Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't. In fact, the story was, uh, it's, uh, was purchased by, um, uh, Dave Blum at Amazon for one of their first Kindle singles when they had begun that program. I think uh, ten years ago or so, and they wanted to um, bring literary fiction into e-readers, and that's what they they published that one. And it's very close to what you see now. I had to make a few changes to bring the children forward more, and to bring out Carol, and to actually leave a little more forward lane because the story was very self-enclosed um, mm-hmm. as it was. But now, you know, uh, there's a, you can see that you know the, the genesis, the seed of most of the story in the novel is there in that short story, that chapter. 
Outer Sunset is a novel of place, the far edge of San Francisco, the actual neighborhood Outer Sunset, a once quiet and, and perhaps somewhat ignored neighborhood that I imagine now is um, quite far from that. Yes. The, no the novel is, uh, in, in one way, a song of praise to a city that has changed perhaps more than any other in the United States. But yes. Jim isn't blind to the problems. There's homelessness and drug use, but it is a place that is powerfully his home. How does mm -hmm. San Francisco, at this very specific moment of time in the novel, um, make meaning for you here? Oh, boy. I could go on so much about our city. Um, I've lived here since 87, so it's almost 35 years, certainly more of my life than not. And um, we don't live in the outer sunset. We live in the outer Richmond now, but it's these are neighborhoods far to the west. And when I first came to the city, you know, my wife and I moved to North Beach because we were going to be riders, and that was the cool thing to do and be there. <laughs> um, but it was uh, it was always foggier and colder out here. It was a little less, um, you know, there was it seemed a little rougher. You could be a little seedy. I have many friends now who've grown up out here and told me, you know, there's some of the places, especially outer reaches of Golden Gate Park. And sometimes even the, the beach, uh, Ocean Beach, could be a little dicey for kids and especially girls. But um, it's changed so much because of money. Um, what I really took away from writing this story was, first of all, it's a perfect place to stage this man's story. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. it's, 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 in fact, the place gave me story quite often. There were things that happened that I just said, I'm not sure why, but let's, let's put this in. We'll find out later. Um, uh, to write it at, you know, it's the, the setting is 1999. It's just before Y2K, um, which people were actually anxious about. If you recall. Oh yeah. Yeah. Something it was, was going to, was going to end everything <laughs> down, down would go the financial system and we'd all be, you know, bartering for coffee beans or something. Exactly. Exactly. And for you're right about coffee beans too. Um, so, uh, to see what life was like before we have these devices where you couldn't communicate with anyone quickly and you couldn't find out the weather. You couldn't know if it was going to be foggy if you hopped on a bus and took the 45 minute ride out to the, the West, you know, um, that was, that informed a lot to, I, I just, reminded me of how we used to communicate with each other and how much you relied on a phone call or a conversation or, um, chance. Uh, so, but what's really, I think that there's so many, narratives that are built around san francisco so many myths so many um we brand ourselves so many in fact there's actually a, a branding war right now going on in the city with one group saying you know we're this where it all starts here someone else is saying no but we need to develop and bring back the silicon you know the the, the tech money etc this there's a, a thousand different ways to go but i think the the real stressor has always been in san francisco aside from the fact that many things are uh flexible and have to be because we live on shaky ground, is money. Mm -hmm. It's just money comes into the city in such floods, so suddenly, it's transformational. And, you know, uh, my wife works in the school district, um, and we, you know, we our kids went through it too. You see the stressors on families there, um, or just having lived here, you know, ourselves, because of this kind of, you know, suddenly you can't afford to I mean, we'll, we still are renters, and it's because of rent control that we're able to stay here. But just as we get close enough to like, okay, now we can maybe buy something. You're like, whoop, no, it actually just tripled, you know? Mm. Um, and that, that's, there's, 
there's just so much to explore with how that affects people. Everyday life, stability, relationships, you know, when you have friends just moving out, you know, far away all of a sudden, you know, or, or the, I've seen marriages hurt so badly over money. Um, if you become unemployable because your skill set is now obsolete or you have a new skill set and you're suddenly making, you know, three times what you're used to, it's a, it's a remarkable, really dramatic and, um, it can be a little scary, but you know, I think it, it, certain people are able to stay and that, and I, I love those people. So, hmm. Well, it's uh, I, it made me want to go back to San Francisco, reading it and and to explore um, places that I had loved in my youth. But as you say, it really is a kind of place that is is almost like a pressure cooker for things yeah. that kind of capital does in in the world, and they yeah. happen faster and more intensely in the uh, in in the city. Um, so. Jim is divorced, but he starts a relationship with a woman named Carol, who is a chain-smoking, would-be social worker who's quite close with his daughter. Mm. They are seemingly a quite a poor fit temperamentally in their interests and in their ways of being in the world. It's a, I might call it an anti-romantic relationship, with mm. the exception of their immense shared love and their willingness to support uh, Jim's daughter, Dorothy. It's rather daring to write such an unromantic relationship. Could you talk to us about this peculiar but fascinating relationship between Jim and Carol? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's a great question. Uh, that's come up in a couple of places. You know, that people, it's not, you know, they said, what is his attraction to her? It's not really clear, you know, that it's something sexual, but there's definitely an emotional component. If you look at Jim um, and you see, uh, I mean, he changes certainly through the story, but He's not, um, he's very much in his head, so much so that he, he rarely even will complain about a headache, a hangover, a pain in the toe, nothing. He never, he's almost out of body, if you think mm. about it. He's very observant and he's very, he's thinking while he's observing and he's so, this is a man who spent far too much time, you know, um, on the interior. And, um, but with Carol, um, who to me is she's she's those things that you mentioned, but she's also she brings music uh, into his life. She brings some flexibility and some connections between the spaces where I think um, he gets lost. And that relationship is mostly a conversation that get, gets better and better for me. Um, and they they draw closer and closer together. She um, th there's a I don't want to, it's not ruining the story, I suppose. It's not that kind of story, but they meet uh, toward the end at her apartment when he has, he's, he's really adrift. I mean, eventually he'll run through every version of the world that he can think up uh, for himself and find that there's still a lack. And the conversation he has with her at her apartment the day she's working and can't really spend too much time, that's a big one for me because I think that he's, he's, he's really meeting someone directly. Um, he quotes, uh, I think in that, yeah, he quotes uh, a Wallace Stephen line or two, and she understands that they, they are very uh, intellectually compatible. And they also, without him knowing it fully, they have a lot of similarities in their story. Um, we don't know a lot of how her, her, her marriage ended, you know, but it's, you can guess that they, they would have more to talk about. 
And I, I would say the the moment in which I thought, okay, these are both, you know, people who are intellectuals and they have these intense passions. But I thought, is this ever going to work? Was when they're at City Lights Books and mm. there is a Ferlinghetti uh, reading that's, yes. that's going to happen. And Jim just flat doesn't want to go to it. He finds them sort of embarrassing and not a good representation of what poetry is on the page. And she's she's stunned. Like, you know, City Lights is such an institution and Ferlinghetti is, you know, kind of one of the last living members of the the, the beats. And, uh, and and I wonder if that moment for you, what, what did you think that they could recover after that? Oh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's it's an old trope, but people say, "Oh, the, the characters just kind of told me that you know they wrote the story." But you know, I've tried for every page you see on there. There's at least two that were tossed, and I've written those people. You know, I thought like maybe they should, you know, get rid of that or something. And it, it doesn't work. You, they'll they'll it just you just keep taking the next step. You feel what's right. You know, you you know these people as they actually are are also born and evolve with you. And uh, it was clear to me that that was as far as they were, were going to go, uh, especially that that evening. And also um, it ends, right? The, that's the end of their evening. And she's she's kind of closed up and put them on a trolley and then go home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, um, uh, there's more, there's more. You can tell there's more. And they, because they have a, this common task of, of caring for Dorothy, and um, I think there's also a lot of growth still in their, their connections. You know, um, I can't tell you exactly why for a moment I wrote their dialogue as a script. You know, it's a he, she, he, she. Mm-hmm. Um, that's this evolving filmic nature that the, the, the book eventually, you know, it's ending and, and something else, someone else's part and vision. Um, and it, it really kicked into place for me at that uh, dinner they had. So I, I think there was, that's another indication that things were growing forward. To me, I knew they had more to say, and I was just going to keep pushing until I found out. So uh, Dorsey, uh, in her in, in her um, process of treatment and support, ends up in conflict with Jim over the idealism and realism that comes in when you think about a bad health diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Jim comes to see that his daughter needs to see her life in terms of a finite amount of time. And and Jim wants a miracle that comes mm-hmm. from, from fighting. Mm-hmm. And the novel ultimately seems to side with Dorothy and it presses Jim to allow her to script her own life and, mm-hmm. and perhaps her possible dying. Mm. I'm interested in how these warring philosophies on health and illness made their way into Outer Sunset. <sighs> um, well, there's also, I, I had, um, I have a, a sister-in-law who passed from this cancer. And I also, at the same time, had a, uh, a close friend in another group that I'm part of also die of it. It's a, it's a, this cancer in particular, I think is horribly brutal because, um, uh, it basically, you're you're just unable to take in nutrition. You're slowly, you know, shutting down as that happens with most, I guess. But you're clear as a bell. Um, so both of these women were able to talk with me as if, I mean, I just the, this one, one of them who passed. I just had a normal lunch with her the week before. It was strange, and um, mm. 
So there's, and when you talk to these people and the situation, I've been around a lot of sick people, um, people, uh, yeah. death and illness is not a big strange thing to me. I've also worked in a nursing home when I was young and a couple other places. You, you, you hear from folks that what most of the people who are very strong and intellectually all there will not want to fool around and uh, waste time with daydreams. If there's a certainty, a medical certainty that they know and they're sharing with you, you're showing them the best respect and care you can to meet them there rather than leaving them adrift to, you know, have to face the truth alone while you take care of whatever you need to for yourself with the story, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel that uh, I was I was probably struggling in those those moments as well with the two points of view. You can't write something and have it emotionally true without, you know, investing in, and being at stake yourself while you're doing that. And I think I certainly was in those moments. And I don't want to say, you know, my kids are both perfectly healthy. I can't imagine anyone getting sick. I don't want to. Uh, but if I were in that situation, how would this feel? What would I do? And what would they say to me? Um, and uh, there's a lot. There's a lot there, right? You're learning this person's character so profoundly um, and and your differences, um, which are so difficult to take in, especially with relationships as close as family. Boy, it's Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, and I didn't, I have to say, it It, it, it really did feel like it rang true. I, my my <laughs> children are are healthy and well, but, uh, I was imagining myself in, in Jim's place and, and wondering the struggles that I would have and the things that would be really difficult for me. And, and I think I would have the same difficulties as Jim, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, uh, at the book launch, um, I was in conversation with a, a fellow writer named Becca Handler, uh, and, uh, she has kids too. And we were talking about that. And it's funny where, you know, when they're little, you fear for the worst almost every day. I mean, you just yeah, need them yeah. to speak things and outlets, you know, and playing with sharp knives and what, but um, when they're older, you know, it's uh, what, what, what could happen. And um, I, in that, the years that I was writing this, I, I saw what could happen. You know, I, I, my sister-in-law's, um, I know her mother as well and saw what she was living through. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's something worth exploring. I think, I think um, it's important to face truths, um, and, but not wallow. Uh, so, um, hopefully I managed that. Uh, you certainly did. And, uh, I, I want to turn to one of my favorite characters in the novel. Uh, I, I think it's pronounced, it's pronounced Xenia? Xenia. Like a, yeah. Almost like a KS at the, at the front of that. Okay. Xenia. Um, and, and Xenia is, uh, is Jim's son's Ukrainian girlfriend. She's a, a bit older than him. Uh, and, and very interestingly, she adheres to an Orthodox faith and ends up taking Jim to pray over a saint's sanctified body. Hmm. And she prompts in Jim this question of whether religion or living in a religious way can be a powerful thing for the non-religious, which I thought hmm. was a 
was a really interesting question to have fall into this novel about how much we feel uh, out of control when there's um, when there's an illness or or someone is dying, and and I wondered if you could say a little bit about how that idea of religion lives in the novel. Well, with with her, first of all, um, it's important to I want to note that as she's Ukrainian, but this is Ukrainian um, at the turn of the century, so. This she's she's coming from a culture that had very very limited exposure to the West, not even you know television and, and pop music. It was a different world. Um, I can't recommend enough uh, a book by uh, Svetlana Alexievich. It's called Secondhand Time, and it's almost first person narrations throughout seven hundred pages of people's stories who've grown up in various places in Russia and Ukraine and other places and. Just did understanding. The no, did she win the Nobel Prize? Is that yes, she did. She did. Okay. It's a fantastic book, and uh, was recommended to me by a Russian friend. That perspective just well, it just made me understand. You, you never know what's going to come. I, 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 you know, I, I don't talk about Putin's war, for instance, with my Russian friends or Ukrainian friends because there's still so many nuances that I'm never going to understand. I mean, to me, obviously, what's going on is is wrong. But then there's so many things that are both sides, and it's as as, as freighted as. Uh, the uh, Israeli uh, Gaza issue. So religion, she is, um, she's a true believer in what I I found with my friends. I myself, uh, uh, I joined the Orthodox Church of America, which is not uh, an ethnic church. It's a, I was born uh, Roman Catholic and then um, became an Eastern Catholic 20 years ago, which is this weird cusp. And yeah, I've never even you. heard, I've never heard of it. <laughs> Actually, Byzantine, I was a Russian Byzantine Catholic, if that makes sense. So, <laughs> but we can do that elsewhere. You know, it's too much story for here. But uh, it's an every it's a different kind of faith where you're there's no say divorce between matter and spirit. This is huge for me. This is post enlightenment. I see Senia saying something that she believes. That's also something she feels and does. There's a, a purity of intention and execution. There's a real true. It's a different sort of faith than I was raised with there's no you do this to get that ticket so you can go to heaven later kind of deal it's about becoming a fully spiritual uh, you know bringing divinity right into life every day and i found her a perfect foil to jim um because she's so embodied to me i feel that she's very uh, holistic about everything and her frustration with him it was hard for her to even mask, you know? I mean, she's far more frustrated with him than she is any other part of American life, including the language, you know? She's just very much in place. She's she's at home here. But um, he's he's a, a nanny in some ways. And so I don't even think she probably expected him to pray, but to bring him into that place and that, that St. John of Shanghai really, you know, this is, uh, is uh, relics are there. He's, he's real. Um, he's called the wonder worker. People go and... Um, leave petitions and you know some of them are are granted it's a a daunting and no joke environment so to bring him in there um i, I give him kudos for having the audacity to follow her in you know because it's it's not easy and then to be there um i did him good i think so when he goes later on his own um if you read that closely and that was a very difficult chapter for me to write he just runs through almost every line every story he's able to to pitch i mean this is a man who's finally running out of narrative resources he's just gonna he's uh less flatteringly i could say he's pulling his, his head out the rear end of his own self-managed narration 
by the end of the book. And that's important. And uh, that's something that having a true spiritual life and some challenges and uh, an inability to push off what's not every day will bring to you. I, I want to think a second about Dorothy's filmmaking. When we first meet her, she's making um, a commercial, I think, for retirement investments. Is that right? Uh, let's let's think of it as an HR film. HR film. Okay. Yeah. About retirement. Yeah. Uh, that Jim is sort of a, a somewhat unwitting star of. But once she has her diagnosis, Dorsey will begin making a film that ends up drawing in all of her family and their web of connections and a dog. Uh, it becomes the one thing that she feels she must finish if should she only have three months to live. <laughs> In the end, art and family are what remains for her. Why and how did art become so central to Dorothy's exploration of the end of her life? Well, so your earlier question, you're referring to um, her being, you know, just very close to the truths of her medical condition where Jim was more like, you know, hoping for a miracle. And I don't think that with her movie, which isn't that exciting a movie in a way. I mean, you know, it's not a Fellaini film. So it's, it's, you know, art is so essential. The older I get, the more important it is to me. I certainly during COVID, we read like castaways. I don't know what we would do without our library and the ability to stream films. Uh, it's so essential, and I can see someone in her position who had been probably putting aside her creative work through most of her career in order to live. You know, that career, by the way, is about to be challenged by the you know, the advent of digital. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that she would adapt with that, um, but uh, it's still, it still was a, a field that she couldn't make a living with unless she was doing corporate work, you know, just like many of us did. You know, like a, I was a copy editor for an accounting firm to get through grad school. Yeah, so it, mirror, think, it mirrors um, Jim's interest in Wallace Stevens' life as a as an insurance claim man. Yes, 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 it does. It does. There's a lot of uh, echoing, rhyming actions. That's what Charles Baxter calls him. So I, I would say that she's postponed art so long, and that she finds out she's got this limited time, and this is something that I'm sure is taking her mind off. I mean, obviously, just you don't want to sit around and just count your pills all day, and. Um, uh, I, I was very, uh, and I think it, it stirred him as well to take different things more seriously than he had before. So, um, I see it functioning in all those ways. Mm -hmm. There's uh, some really beautiful moments that describe Jim's life as a teacher mm. is in particular, his relationship to an immigrant high school student, Pavel, uh, yeah. opens up for us something at the heart of the novel that meeting people where they are in their lives and trying to see them without a veneer of judgment is maybe the most difficult thing, but perhaps the most precious thing that we can do. Could you talk a little bit about Pavel and Jim's teaching life and, and how that factored into this kind of development of a sense of, you know, what's a, what's a well-lived life? Mm -hmm. That's well said. Um, uh, First of all, Pavel, I've never been a teacher because I am not that unselfish. I just, I know gifted teachers I've been, I've benefited so much from uh, profoundly caring uh, teachers, especially in my public schools. Um, but um, I did substitute for a while. And I also used to go on all the field trips when my kids were in school. So there was, I knew a Pavel 
that as a first or second grader who was just a wild boy and who really took to me. And we spent the whole day on this very lengthy, complex field trip that involved ferries and buses and everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and so I imagined him older. Um, and I know, uh, you know, I've had that the, the kind of relationship with younger people, you know, if you've worked as a camp counselor or anything like that. So there's that, that, um, there's a bond there, a, a definite understanding. I was um, thinking about how for for Jim, having a relationship with Pavel ultimately ends up sort of meeting him where he is and his life yes. and trying to see him without all the judgments about you're not a good student and you're you're talking about everything except what we need to talk about. And yeah. what uh, what does this idea of non-judgmentalness, um, how does that kind of factor into this teaching Part, but then kind of bloom into the rest of the novel. I think, you know, that the non-judgmenting, non-judgmentalness, let's just call it love sometimes, right? It's you're meeting somebody um, without your fists up and you're listening and you're seeing and um, and it's it's reciprocal. Um, mm. And in this case, remember the, the boy's father is ill uh, with cancer. So there's a bond that they share there as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when I was writing the book, many times I thought, like, who wants to read this man's story? You know, like I, it began as a, a story that I didn't like the guy myself in in some ways. And so, mm-hmm. um, how you know, how do you keep this open and moving? I want to understand him. I want to understand uh, the changes that he's going through and what he needs to go through and how he's going to do this. And I think that whenever he gets surprised by people like Pavel, and they are they're the very um, or Xenia or Carol. You know, it's just, it gets under his, his thinking. It gets under his um, stories that he's telling himself and it gets him engaged without any uh, barriers. You know, this is a, a, if you piece together his childhood and all of the loss and suffering and, and even the, the instability of, you know, maybe his own physical condition and, uh, and where he lives in San Francisco on this sandy, sandy place. Um, it's probably hard. I thought it was hard for him to let down, but yet also easier than it would be, say, if, you know, it were me in a brick house in the middle of Ohio, you know, it's just a, yeah, a different yeah, yeah. world. And, uh, so that's, that's, that's where that comes from. I think when you, especially it's easier with kids. Um, I think despite what he says about his teaching career and what a phony he felt like sometimes, I'm sure he was a, it was a good guy. He's a good teacher. Sound like he was getting something across it seemed like it uh and and you know the the students take to him in in various ways and he seems an important figure for them yes um before i let you go i'd I'd love to know a little bit about what you've been reading recently and whether you'd like to recommend some things for my listeners always in fact um i knew that question would come up so i had to write down some titles i've been going through so many books. <laughs> uh, it's hard to remember sometimes, but I've got three that are my favorite thing. So <laughs> <laughs> good. I will start with, I really enjoyed, uh, none of these are super new. One, well, one is, uh, I th- had not read much Joy Williams before, um, but I picked up, cool. she's really something, huh? And I picked up Harrow because I'm something of a environmentalist and I really, it's been called cli-fi climate fiction, you know, and I'm not sure that that's going to last as a genre idea. I think that everything we're reading and writing right now is, is reflecting the, the collapses that we're seeing around us. And 
Um, no, that's so what I loved about hers. Uh, it's it's uh, a very, in a way, it's a difficult book to read and to talk about. But um, if you just look at the first three pages, it's just this introductory paragraph or ch- uh, chapter, and it ends with a line that just it just I it just choked me up. It just caught me, and it's a it's you know it's almost surreal the book, but there's something very potent going on here, and it has to do with her strong wit and amazing um, ability to just cast a. A spirit over a moment. It's just, uh, I think it's a great book and I'm planning to reread it so I can talk better about it next mm. year. I, I haven't read it, but it was, it was certainly on my list. It, w- did it come out two years ago or last I year? Think I it's a 2020, let's say. 2020. Oh gosh, the compression yeah. time. It's one of those, you know, it's probably done 2021. There you 2021. go. 2021. Okay. But, you know, people are either finishing things during COVID or getting them out during COVID and you don't quite get there until it's, you know, in your face. But I, I have a three recommendation rule in my house that usually three friends will get, you know, by the time I've got that third recommendation, I'll read. And uh, that was one. Yep. Um, another book that I very much loved, um, and my wife will uh, agree with me here, it's called Gordo, G-O-R-D-O, by uh, Jaime Cortez. He's a local San Francisco writer. This is a very unusual collection of stories and that it's a world you don't know about. It's uh, uh, set in the uh, farm camps um, in the Salinas Valley, actually Watsonville. Uh, and it's a little boy's point of view most often. And he's also uh, becoming aware that he's gay at the same time. The stories are full of so much love and family and uh, humor, laugh out loud humor. Uh, we saw him read and he was he's, he's a really great reader as well so that's we picked up the book i can't recommend that one enough too oh that sounds great i don't know it at all oh good well you're in for a treat and then the other is a holiday uh uh read okay because it's uh coming up on that time of year and this is an old favorite of mine that i read almost every year um it's last night at the lobster by Stuart onan and um it's a short novel you can almost read it in one sitting and set out four days before Christmas. It's a, a, like a, a span of 24 hours. And it's for anybody who's ever had a heartache at, or heartbreak at Christmas time, worked in a restaurant, um, had to deal with slush and bad weather with big cars. And, and it was just, I really, I finished it again just yesterday. And uh, I, I really do love it. That that sounds wonderful. And I know Stuart Onan, but I, I don't know last night at the Lobster. And it sounds perfect for, for holiday. Yeah, it's like I think it's like fifteen years old too. But I um I really recommend that. Oh, that's he uh, great. Blurred me too. He's, so I, I love people who blur me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got some great blurbs on and people I really respect and like on on Outer Sunset, and I want to make. And, and oh yeah, Julia Glass is amazing, and um, you've got Valerie Sayers. So I just want to make sure that people run out and get Outer Sunset. It's such a magnificent book. It, it both lives inside one man's head, but it reaches outward, and that's what I love about it. It's it's uh, a tale of someone trying to get their arms around how to to love and be even when things are dark, and so I. I just can't encourage my listeners enough to get Outer Sunset by Mark Ernest Pothier. Thank you very much, Chris. This was a real pleasure. It was such a nice thing to have you on the show, and I will be looking for more of your work. Thank you. Thank you. I'll keep listening.
Well, that's all for me for now. My thanks to Mark Pothier for coming on the show to talk about his debut novel, Outer Sunset. You can find links to purchase Outer Sunset and all of Mark's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.